News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I know I'm starting to wonder about this next question. What are the ways in which these high gas prices are going to affect us in different parts of the economy? Are we going to see more prices, higher prices for goods and supplies? Is there going to be a premium now attached to all of that? How is that going to unfold and happen? Well, let's talk about that now. Joining us to discuss it is Philip Cross, Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I know you spent quite a bit of your career as well at Statistics mm-hmm. Canada, specializing in macroeconomics. So have you seen trends like this before? Oh, yes. We've seen, uh, you know, we've gone through this in 1974, 1980, 1990, 2008, uh, all periods where gasoline, or sorry, oil prices roughly doubled. So we, we've had a, a lot of instances we can study on how this affects the economy. Okay, so what are you seeing that is interesting about this time? Well, this time, uh, what we're seeing is, you know, as usual, the biggest impact and the most direct impact is is on gasoline prices. That's what people notice right away. Um, but overall, you know, a doubling of oil prices, we estimate, would lead to an increase of about 3% or a 3% increase in the rate of inflation. Uh, so outside of gasoline, uh, the next highest increase is on food prices. And this reflects uh, particularly that, um, you know, we have to uh, truck and carry produce from the farm to the supermarket. So, uh, yeah, as we go forward through 2022, consumers will see more and more upward pressure on food prices. And that's even without the, uh, the incredible spike we're seeing in wheat prices just in the past week or two. And is that a result of what's happening in Ukraine? Oh, very directly. In fact, the surprise is it took markets so long to twig to the fact that, you know, Russia and Ukraine have a much bigger impact on wheat markets than they do in oil prices. Initially, we saw this big run-up in oil prices after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We didn't see much of a response from wheat, but suddenly in the last week, uh, wheat prices have surged to all-time highs. So that's going to affect a wide range of, of products and bread, uh, pasta. Uh, it's going to affect the feed for animals. So, uh, you know, get ready to eat a lot of rice in the next year. That is so interesting because, like, Ukraine is known as being, what, the bread basket, right, of that yep. region. Very much so. Uh, as I say, the... Uh, 30% of world, the world's wheat comes from Ukraine and Russia, and especially Ukraine. I mean, Russia has to consume a lot because of its large population. Ukraine's in a much better position to export a lot of their wheat, just like Canada, because, you know, we're a relatively small population. We end up exporting most of our wheat. Uh, so this, uh, you know, this represents a tremendous opportunity for Canada. I mean, we can talk about the, the, you know, the negative impact on consumer prices, which is quite real and, and painful, but let's remember, too, that for uh, energy producers and, and farmers in this country, uh, this is this is going to be a really good year, assuming we can get our supply. Okay, what does that mean, assuming we can get our supply? Well, then we have to have a good crop. I mean, if we had the kind of heat and drought conditions in Western Canada we had last year, we won't be able to completely take advantage of this. Hopefully, we won't have back-to-back years of, of drought and heat. Uh, growing conditions were much better in eastern Canada last year, but uh, 
you know, we don't grow a lot of wheat here for export. That's really going to depend on what happens in the prairies. Um, so Canada so can look after itself then, Philip, when it comes to wheat, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be impacted by the high prices. Exactly. Um, the good news is, though, that, you know, we will, those high prices will generate a lot of exports, a lot of incomes, which governments will be able to tax. So, uh, you know, indirectly, all Canadians will benefit it benefit from this, even as very directly, all Canadians are also going to be paying a lot more at the pump and at the supermarket checkout counter. Right. Okay. So, so all of this then, would you say, if you look at it in a historical perspective, what does it mean for us when we go to the grocery store? Well, we're going to be paying substantially higher, uh, as I say, uh, especially for those goods that, uh, that either use a lot of wheat products in their in their production, like bread and pasta, and as I mentioned, increasingly animal products as we go forward, uh, but also those products that require a lot of transportation. So things that we have to import in winter, like fruit and vegetables, their prices are going to go up substantially. What about the timeline here? You mentioned throughout 2022. So, Philip, how, how soon could we potentially notice a price difference? Uh, I think we're already seeing it. Uh, you know, this isn't something that just started yesterday. Obviously, the upward pressure in food prices from the Ukrainian situation have become extremely accentuated in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, food prices and, you know, more generally, inflationary pressures have been building for, you know, well over a year now. So uh, this isn't something that you can just say is due to the Ukrainian price shock. Um, this reflects... Uh, uh, the excess stimulus of monetary and fiscal policy we've had for some time. And, and it's very much up to policymakers of whether or not inflation becomes embedded in our system. This could just be a one-time shock to, to prices, and it'll pass. In a year from now, prices will settle down. That's the happy face way of looking at this. But it really depends on whether central banks accommodate these, these upward pressure in prices or whether they take action, stand firm, and don't allow this uh, to become embedded in our system. Right. What kind of signals have you seen then towards that end? Well, at long last, the Bank of Canada finally raised rates a quarter of a point, although a quarter of a point isn't going to make any difference in the longer term. Uh, We're looking at inflation rates of 6-7%, so... Uh, you know, getting interest rates back to two percent isn't going to make a lot of uh, trouble, a lot of difference. We're going to have to get interest rates back to normal levels of three, four percent before we're going to see a notable effect. And by the way, when we're talking about inflationary pressures, and, and that you know, it's not all international. Look no further than housing prices. You know, that's a made in Canada problem. That isn't something that we imported. That isn't something that's due to supply chain disruptions. That is purely and simply excess demand due to low interest rates. So what do you see happening then, you know, for this year? What should Canadians, what should we brace ourselves for, Philip? Well, I mean, it's hard to predict what, you know, a crazy guy like Putin's going to do. But assuming that this war drags on, which, you know, it looks like that as the Ukrainians mount a resistance to this, we're going to see a lot of disruption in food and energy prices. So, uh you know, we could see very high inflation rates. I mean, we're already at 5% before this later shock. Uh, inflationary pressures just keep building. So, you know, I think we'll follow the Americans and we'll be approaching 10% by the end of the year. 
Really? And that's even with the signs that you see coming from the Bank of Canada? Oh, as I say, I don't think the Bank of Canada's actions will have a notable impact on inflation this year. The bank's acting much too cautiously. Uh, Four or five quarter point increases isn't going to make any difference to the kind of uh, upward pressure in prices we're seeing. So uh, I don't think the bank's actions will start to slow inflation until next year. Oh, boy. Okay. So we're going to have in for a bumpy ride with our bills this year. Philip, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's Philip Cross, who's a Monk Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. He also spent 36 years at Statistics Canada, specializing in macroeconomics, talking about how the cost of everything is going to be impacted, you know, how we are going to be impacted by that over the next year. And that's so true. You know what? We talk a lot about oil. Now we have to worry about the price of wheat going up, those bags of flour. Everything that, you know, uses those bags of flour is going to be hit by this as well. This is Mornings with Simi. So we are waiting to find out what's going to happen here in BC with our pandemic restrictions. The big announcement comes tomorrow from Dr. Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. But in anticipation of that, many groups are saying, hey, we would definitely like some consideration on this, in particular, long-term care. Because we know some restrictions have been eased, but there are still others there causing some confusion and some difficulty. Joining us now to talk more about that is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Do you feel that there is still some confusion around what the current rules are? There's no question, and we saw that over the weekend uh, with uh, your own Linda Steele and, uh, you know, confusion around who can and can't visit. And, you know, Linda's been a, well, she's our family champion award winner this year because she's been speaking out about families and the importance of families to uh, those in care and, and, and speaking out about the, the right of families and the right to uh, stay connected to your loved ones in care. So there's definitely some confusion, um, and we're hopeful that this week, Uh, Any changes that are made will be well communicated and uh, the public fully understands and operators fully understand what those new rules are. Okay, so what are the rules right now? Well, currently, if if you have a loved one in care, there's basically uh, two types of visitors. An essential visitor that has to be deemed uh, to be essentially... Uh, someone who can provide something to that person in care that the staff cannot. So that that has to go through a process, and only about 25% of people in care have an essential visitor. But Dr. Henry uh, said that everyone uh, should have a designated visitor as well, so that uh, anyone, for any reason, could be assigned as a designated visitor. But it's only one person uh, that can go in and, and see someone in care. And everyone has to be screened. Uh, for symptoms of COVID before they go in, and everybody has to undergo a rapid test before they go in, and everyone has to be vaccinated. So, you know, it took about six weeks to get the guidance document out after these changes were made. So there was a lot of room for confusion among operators and among family members. And after two years of the social isolation that's occurred in long-term care, the last thing we want to see is is confusion and anxiety right. being created. How difficult is it then, Terry, to find out what the rules actually are? Well, you know, I was on the BC CDC website today, and um, you know, it, that, that visitor guidance is not uh, easily uh, findable on the BC CDC website. So, really, people have to rely on 
the operator, uh, making sure they are aware of the guidance and then communicating that uh, to visitors. Um, things like out number of outbreaks, again, there's confusion uh, about what an outbreak is and what it isn't. Those rules have changed or definitions have changed. And in fact, when I was on the website of BCCDC and uh, Interior Health Authority this morning, they have differing information uh, on the number of outbreaks and the location of those outbreaks. So there's a tremendous amount of confusion, Simi, and I think perhaps it's just because we're in this particular phase of the pandemic where you know, the, the variant is, is milder, the level of vaccination is so much higher, um, and the, the need for devo- uh, devoting resources is greater elsewhere. But there does seem to be a lack, uh, you know, of information that's creating this vacuum that people are filling in with their own thoughts about what the rules are. So have you heard, Terry, or any indications of what might be happening tomorrow? Are you optimistic that you might be seeing some loosening here? Well, unfortunately, Simi, we've often not been made aware of any changes ahead of time. They've happened without consultation and uh, just been announced. We hear it at the same time everyone else does, which, again, is part of the problem. Um, You know, hopefully sometime today we might get a heads up about what we're going to see tomorrow. I hope that they will um, change and allow more visitation to occur, but it has to be in a way that makes it, you know, uh, easy to to facilitate on behalf of operators and right now everyone has to be screened everyone has to be tested so that means that it's just not a simple um, situation where you show up at the door and go visit it takes time and it takes resources uh, to be able to do that so we're hopeful that they would consider things like allow the rapid test to be done at home before you come that would relieve the pressure on the visitation screeners at each home uh, we know that you know those tests are available to people over 60 at pharmacies, and most visitors are in fact in that age group. So you know I think we need to modify some of these restrictions and some of these screening procedures if we're going to allow more people the opportunity to visit, which of course we all want to see. Right. You've talked about how there are still some outbreaks that are happening at some long-term care homes. How are those being dealt with? Have, have those systems improved? Well, again, the definition of an outbreak changes. It really is up to the individual medical health officer to determine that the the spread of the virus is sort of uncontrolled before they call it an outbreak. And so that can vary from location to location. But there's no question the number of cases we're seeing in long-term care is much, much less than it was. Um, my hope is that uh, that we don't get complacent and that as soon as the recommendation from NASI comes through to give a fourth dose to people in care, that we have a plan that can be implemented immediately because our very best protection uh, is the vaccine and, and we can't become complacent about a, a new variant or, or wearing off of immunity for people that are in care. Okay, so you do sound like you're hopeful that do you feel can long-term care homes can they can they take this? Can they take some lifting of restrictions? Do you think it will be okay? Again, I think it depends how they do it. Uh, first of all, let's have really clear communication. Let's make it easier uh, so that people can do their rapid testing at home ahead of time uh, so that you don't have you know that 15 minute step in between when you arrive at the home and, and when you do your visit. Uh, that would be very helpful. Uh, so I think there are ways and means of doing it, Simi. We all want families to be reconnected, uh, but especially when we have so many staff shortages in long-term care, we need to do it in a way that doesn't create 
more pressure, which creates um, confusion uh, and uh, some anxiety and uh, sometimes some some bad right. feelings between families and operators. Oof, that would not be a very pleasant situation. So then, Terry, if you were to advise the government on this one, what would you like ideally like to see them do? Well, I would like to see visitation opened up with, um, you know, remaining uh, the vaccination mandate uh, in place, of course. And if the testing mandate is going to remain in place, that uh, people be allowed to do that at home. With the weather improving now, Sydney, you know, we'll have opportunities to visit outside. And and, uh, that, again, will increase opportunities and make it easier and safer for people to visit as well. All right. Terry, thanks so much. We'll wait and see what happens. Thanks for having me, Simi. Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. You heard him say it. They're hoping to see restrictions lifted for people to come and visit uh, their loved ones, their family loved ones in long-term care homes. But we'll get the word on that tomorrow. What do you think should happen? Can we do that? Or does it feel safe enough for you to say, yeah, let's lift those restrictions? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you remember the story about that cargo ship that lost, what was it, something like 109 containers off the BC coast? It just happened last fall. Well, of course, a lot of us may have forgotten about that story, but the thing is, it continues. There's actually a lot going on with this because the debris is still being cleaned up from that cargo ship. And in fact, a volunteer organization said this should actually be a wake-up call to the need for more urgent action. Joining us now to talk about this is Alice Hoyland, who's the chapter rep for the Surfrider Foundation's Pacific Rim chapter in Tofino. Alice, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Good morning. What are these? What are you still finding there? So what's washing up? So the the scale of the debris, or I should say, the intensity of debris has definitely changed since last fall. And um, when the containers, the four containers that did make ground, made ground up in the northwest coast of the island here, um, it was fairly shocking to see the huge inundation of of plastic debris. Um, but over time, what's happened is a lot of that debris made it back out into the ocean. There's also 105 containers unaccounted for, and some of that debris is now spreading. Um, now, from our network of, of cleanup organizations that are represented through the BC Marine Debris Working Group, we've actually had reports of container debris from as far north as Haida Gwaii, all the way down to the middle of Vancouver Island. So it's a pretty extensive stretch of coastline that's been affected by the spill at this point. It's no longer, you know, beaches covered in container-related debris, but it's it's recognizable debris from that spill right. that's spreading throughout the coastline. Alice, do you think that it, for a lot of people, it's just like out of sight, out of mind that, oh, okay, yeah, we didn't hear about it. We're not there, so we don't see what's actually happening now. I think there's an element of that. I think as well, it's um, it's just the fact that it's a, it's a really slow-moving kind of issue. You know, like when the when the beaches were covered in debris back in November, it was easy to see what the issue was. But now that there's still 105 containers unaccounted for, but they're beneath the water, it, it is definitely a, a harder to see issue that's going to be continuing to affect our coastlines for years to come. Here, what can we do? So I think there's there's a couple of things that um, are really kind of pertinent questions coming out of this at this point. And the first one is, how do we build capacity in our coastal communities to be able to respond to issues like this in the future? So, you know, engaging with our elected representatives to tell them this is a serious issue that we, we care a lot about, um, to ensure that we have an adequate response plan for 
when this inevitably happens again, you know, this is a second large scale spill in five years. So this is a, this is a serious issue for the BC coast here. Um, and I think the, the other really big pressing issue for this specific spill is we really need more transparency from the, the shipping company. We, we need to know what was in those containers. The manifest is still not public knowledge. And so it's very hard for coastal communities that are walking shorelines, they're finding debris. It's impossible for us to know whether it's coming from that container ship or not while we don't have a manifest, you know. So we know the stuff that we saw coming out of those four containers. What was in the other 105? Um, right. So a manifest from that company would be great. Yeah. So how many people are involved in this? Is this like a volunteer effort? Is it if you live along the coast, this is just something that you do? There's a, there's definitely a, a large group of people involved here. There are um, there are contracted parties on the part of the shipping company that are involved. There's the Canadian Coast Guard. They're also super involved in the recovery effort here. Uh, but on the volunteer side of things, the BC Marine Debris Working Group has mobilized to gather data and share information on what we're finding here. So uh, to give you a, an indication of that, we've got about three organizations up north that are, are kind of leading the efforts in the northwest side of the island. And there's a handful of organizations on the south of the island. There's some on the lower mainland as well, all collaborating to gather information, share data, and really paint a picture of what, what this spill is looking like on the coast. Right. Is it true as well, Alice, that like, you know, beach cleaners still find stuff that fell overboard from a container like in the 1990s? That's absolutely true. Yeah, there's there's lots of in- incidents of this, actually. So we regularly find things like hockey, hockey equipment from a spill that happened in the 90s uh, out here uh, in Europe. Um, there's also Lego still washing in from a spill that happened in 97. Like That's still washing up on I England remember, shoreline. Yeah, I remember that one, actually. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is something that is a really big issue, actually. You know, thousands of these containers go overboard every year across the world in the ocean. Um, and there's very little accountability for the, the companies that are responsible for those spills. Again, because it's out of sight, out of mind, it's in the ocean. <laughs> and so there's very little scrutiny as to what goes on there. You know, the containers go overboard. Yeah. We don't know what's inside them. And the st- stuff continues to wash up and pollute coastal ecosystems for years to come. Alice, where can people find out more information or help out if they want to? So you can reach out to us directly at Surfrider Foundation Canada or Surfrider Foundation Pacific Rim Chapter. Um, there's also up north, if you're interested in finding out more and helping out with the recovery efforts, Epic Exio is the, uh, the organization that's really leading the charge in that part of the coast there. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Okay, take care. You too. That's Alice Hoyland, who's the chapter representative for the Surfrider Foundation's Pacific Rim chapter in Tofino. They are beach cleaners. They are volunteer beach cleaners. And they said they are still seeing so much debris from that cargo ship that lost 109 containers off the coast. That was last fall. But they said they need they need help. They need to know what was in the rest of these containers. They need to know what to look out for. And it is continuing to wash up along the western shore of Vancouver Island and as far away as Haida Gwaii, too. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, these high gas prices have affected, it feels like, everybody and everything. Just imagine what it would be like right now, though, to drive a truck for a living. The trucking sector is also being directly impacted by this. So we thought, how is this going to impact everyone? So joining us now to talk about that is Dave Earle, president of the BC Trucking Association. Good morning, Dave. It must feel like to you, if it isn't one thing, it's another these days. 
You know, it would be nice if we could catch a break. And by we, I mean, uh, you know, the industry and certainly I think everybody, Cindy, Cindy, we're we're all a little tired of all this. I can imagine. Okay, so what are you hearing from your members right now about these high gas prices? You know, it's uh, it's just one more thing uh, to add on. Uh, you know, there's basically two ways uh, that this gets addressed in the industry. And, and one of them is if there's a long-standing contract uh, between a shipper and, and a carrier uh I don't know of any that don't have fuel surcharges and, and fuel levels and different gates that come in at different prices. So the rates go up. Uh, and the other one, if you're somebody looking to move one or two loads in a moment, uh, you have to go to the spot market. Well, you, you can guess again, those, those rates move up, which means that uh, in the end, uh, we all pay. It, when you say in the end, we all pay, how is that cost transferred on? What happens? Well, the, the number one consumable cost uh, in the industry is fuel. Uh, that's why carriers are so focused on fuel-saving technologies and uh, doing what they can to, to address that. Uh, but what it means, really, uh, in British Columbia, because of our mountains, uh, the average carrier, it's about a third of their, uh, their operating cost is fuel. Uh, so if that, in turn, has gone up by 20, 25 or $0.30 cents a litre, uh, what that means is the, uh, the, the cost to actually move anything goes up by that much as well. So it's just one of, again, another one of those incremental costs that gets built into everything that we buy. Okay. How soon do you think that, Dave, is going to kind of trickle down? When will regular consumers start to notice that, oh, wait a minute, the price of that went up? (laughs) It's already started, Simi. Um, The one thing about the industry is it's so transparent and so real time. Uh, When we talk about fuel surcharges, they get added to the bottom of, of an invoice uh, when that load gets dropped off. Uh, so the shipper receivers have already started to pay those extra fees. They've already started uh, to pay those extra costs. Uh, you know, the companies that are doing the work have already started to pay the extra costs because not everything gets passed on. There's always part of it that the companies have to find a way to absorb. Uh, and all of this uh, has already started to bite and to hit the things that uh, we buy every day. Oh, that's going to be a tough one then. So this is this all over the province? This is right across the country, Dave? Is that what you're hearing? It's right across the continent. Uh, there's no escape to it. When we, we talk about this being a worldwide issue, it is a literally a worldwide issue. Uh, fuel prices in the United States are way up as well. Um, it's just simply everywhere you go, everywhere that you, uh, you operate, uh, you know, fuel is just a lot higher than it was a couple of weeks ago. Oh, boy. What are truckers doing to mitigate that, if anything? Or is it just one of those things where we've got to bite it, got to do it? Well, I mean, there's a degree of that because there's only so much you can do. But uh, one of the things that uh, we as an association have been doing with the province is uh, administering something called the Heavy-Duty Vehicle Efficiency Program. Uh, this is where we train companies on what fuel-saving technologies are available, how to train their drivers to operate more fuel efficiently, and we also have uh, subsidies and rebates available for uh, equipment that uh, is put on trucks that saves fuel. Eventually, we'll be able to move to alternate fuels more uh, promptly, and we'll have uh, zero-emission vehicles uh, available, but those just don't exist right now. I noticed how carefully you said the word eventually. So is there a lot of, would you say, pent up demand for that? Like, where is that electric semi truck that, you know, Elon Musk keeps promising? Uh, Not here. (laughs) So uh, it's coming. There's an immense amount of demand. We are hopeful that we'll see the first, uh, what we call class eight, the big electric trucks, the fully battery electric trucks uh, in the province operating uh, late in the second quarter this year, we anticipate getting and seeing about five or six of them on the road. Uh, but to me, that's, that's five or six out of 65,000. 
um, it's going to take a long while uh, for us to be able to turn over the fleet. Um, we see it in the light vehicle world. I mean, the light vehicles have been around, uh, electric vehicles have been around about 14 years. Um, and while we've got 10% of new vehicle sales, uh, zero emissions, that translates to about 2% of the fleet. So right. it's just going to take a little bit of time, but we're getting there. Okay, so then Dave, once again, so right now, a trucker has to fill up and they're filling up with these astronomical gas prices. Now that money, is it directly impacting then what they're paying for that load or what they're being paid for that load? Absolutely. It's directly impacting what you what, what the, the shipper receiver pays to get that load to move, which means unless they absorb it somehow, um, it just gets passed on and, and built into the price of the product. And we're going to be seeing more of that, you think? All depends on gas prices. I, I am I am heartened to me. Yesterday, I saw I saw a deal on gas. It, w- it was two hundred five nine. Did you ever think you'd say that? <laughs> no, um, no, I didn't. You know, but uh, I, I hope uh, that as we move forward in this, prices stabilize and then start to return to a place of uh, a little bit more normal. A little bit more normal. I'm not even sure we know what that is anymore. But Dave, thank right. you very much for that. All right, thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. Dave Earle is the president of the BC Trucking Association. As if they haven't gone through enough already in the last six months. What with the road situation and the supply chain issues, now they're dealing with these incredibly high gas prices, which, by the way, Daniel tweeted me to say, fuel price in Langley that Daniel saw there, $2.17 a litre. Obviously, that station getting a jump on the expected increase that's supposed to happen over the next day or two. So it really does vary out there. I've heard $2.03 a litre that is out there this morning. I've, I have myself put put some, I didn't fill it up, but put some gas in my car today and it was $2.09 a litre. Uh, but what are you seeing where you are? You can weigh in simi at cknw.com. And you know what? We're all doing little things to kind of compensate for all these extra costs that are happening now. Like, is there something you're cutting back on? Is there something where you've just kind of in the back of your mind even thought, you know what? I better skip that this week or I better skip that today. I'm just, everything else is costing so much more money right now. Let me know because I know that there's things like that in my life for sure. You know what? Wanted to go maybe grab something to eat. Nah, we'll go eat. There's food at home because again, of these higher prices for everything it feels this is Mornings with Simi. But like gas prices are all over the map right now. I've gotten great emails from you all morning long telling me what you're seeing prices at. Costco and Langley, according to Kevin, $1.98.9. Okay, great. Chris tells me that the Costco wholesale in Abbotsford is $1.93.9 this morning. That's going to cause a lineup, I'm sure. And then Dan was pointing out to me that if you use an app, something like Gas Buddy, you know, to see what the prices are at all these different stations, that you will see it varies widely. Anything from 205.9 to 224.9, he said. You got And how is that possible if it's like a gas station that's like, you know, a mile away? How is the price fluctuating so wildly like that? What is going on? All good questions. Let's talk about though what you can do with your vehicle that you have without having to rush out and go buy something else to help mitigate that fuel bill. Our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now to talk about that. Morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, definitely a bit late for us to all run out and uh, buy EVs. First of all, as I think you know firsthand, car dealerships 
don't even have the stock right now of electrical vehicles. Not much. And yeah. Secondly, there are things that drivers can do right now to cut their fuel. I talked to Lorraine Summerfield. She's a car expert and writer at driving.ca. She has some no-nonsense tips that we can all use to start saving gas now. And the first one is for our morning commuters that are about to get out on the highway. You're on a highway. The difference between 100 and 120 is seriously 20%. You will notice it quickly. And on it, I can just say, put on your cruise control, get in the right lane, and just you'll get there at the same time, basically, because you're not playing all the games. But speeding sucks gas like crazy. Okay, that is so true because I drive, this is going to sound ridiculous, I drive very slowly to work in the morning, even though there's nobody on the road. And it's just because sometimes I'm killing time. I'm like, oh, I left home too early this morning. And, you know, I'll just drive slowly, see what's going on and (laughs) take my time. And I drive, I go through, and I have found it makes a huge difference on my gas bill. Oh, I bet. And me, on the other hand, I tend to drive really, well, not really fast, but faster than I'm supposed to in the morning because the roads are clear. So it's just I do it naturally and I notice how much quicker it guzzles gas. Well, the other thing that we could do is watch those left turns. Something that a lot of people maybe don't take into account, but especially if you're in an urban center, is left turns. We spend an awful lot of time sitting at left turns waiting to make them. They're the most dangerous maneuver we do on a road, believe it or not. And you're sitting there idling, you miss the light. That wastes a ton of gas. UPS, all the big delivery services figured this out about a decade ago, and they started saving millions and millions and millions of gallons of fuel and cut their emissions and time and the number of crashes that their drivers were involved in. So if you can plan your loop, this takes a bit of time, but if you've got to hit the pet store, the grocery store, the liquor store, whatever, plan it. So you're taking away left turns as much as you can. You have to be realistic, but you'll find you can probably do it. Okay. Well, who doesn't want to avoid a good left turn? I do. Also, I tend to look for intersections where I know there's an advanced left turn light. Oh, good tip. Okay, so I don't actually consider left turns that much. I I hate left turns. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There are surely some that I try to avoid altogether, but just this idea of planning your whole route around them was uh, new to me. So I like that tip. Here is one that I needed to hear. Golf clubs and hockey bags are the two biggest defenders. Uh, In my house, there's a lot of you know, taking stuff to Value Village or Goodwill and say, oh, I'll do it next time I'm out. A lot of us have a lot of junk in the trunk that we don't need to have in there. And not only should it not be flying around, it's not a great idea, but extra weight is more for your car to move. So every time you have to get your car moving, you're getting more weight moving. So if it doesn't need to be in there, get rid of it. It's also better for all all the stuff not to be, you know, flying around and getting stuff dripped on it and everything else. Yeah, for sure. And what about maintenance? Maintenance is cheaper than repair. If I could tell everyone that owns a car that, that's the first thing I would tell them. Most, too many people wait for something to break. Don't, don't, don't. Have your maintenance done. Oil changes and tire rotations are the cheapest ways to keep your car happy and your wallet with some money left in it. Okay, more good advice. Yeah, and so including uh, included in that maintenance is keeping your tires pumped to where they're supposed to be because that can take up a ton of gas. This next tip is an important one. A big one is when you're sitting at a red light and you're staring at the light waiting for it to change green and then you just jam. You put your foot right into the throttle because it's your turn to go. That floods your car with fuel. You top end it. 
It's a silly waste of gas. You don't need to get going that quickly. Safety, again, if someone's running a red light, especially, you know, if you're in a big city, a lot of people run red lights or there's pedestrians still there. So safety-wise, it's, you know, an added bonus. But every single time that you're mashing on the brake or the gas, you are messing with your fuel economy. You've probably got a little readout on your car that tells you how much fuel you're consuming. Bring it up. Don't drive staring at it, but keep an eye on it and you'll see and try and keep it to a realistic level. You can get it down a lot. The smoother you drive, the more fuel you will save. I feel like the advice we're getting here, Raji, has a lot to do with being the tortoise rather than the hare. Yeah, absolutely. And I am still amazed at how many people think it's fun to just like rev their engine and just hit the gas right when the light turns green. It To me, it shows a, shows a sign of immaturity. <laughs> and also with these gas prices, that's not something that you want to do. Here's another tip that people should be keeping in mind. It's tempting when it's cold out to, to warm your car up. She says don't. In the old days, um, especially when I was a kid, my dad would go out and start the car and leave it running for 15 minutes or 20 minutes to warm it up, get the oil moving through it to lubricate it. That's not the case anymore. Unless you live in very, very cold regions of the country, and I hear you people, I know some people do, Northern BC is one of them. The rest of us, you do not have to let your car warm up. What you do is you start it, then you drive it gently for the first kilometer or so. You take it easy. That's enough to get the lubricants moving and everything will warm up accordingly. I love heated seats because they heat up quickly. You don't have to heat up your whole cabin. You can just put the seats on and not worry about you know having this cozy little womb to climb into. But the whole idea of idling your car, it's bad for the environment. It wastes fuel. Your car doesn't need to do it. It's a dumb thing. Don't do it. Raji, that was all great advice. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. Now, we're going to use some of that for sure. That's our Raji Silhal there with things you can do with your car right now to help cut down on that gas bill.